Good morning, church. My name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors here. And man, that video was awesome, wasn't it? Would you guys join me in giving a hand to our tech team? I love uh, being able to brag on our tech team. It's headed up by my sister, which is awesome. She's amazing. She's incredibly gifted. And even still, she's a better friend and advocate. And so um, I'm glad she's my sister. Sorry, she's not yours. Um, But, you know, things will work out. So we are in this series called Luke, the most important story in the world. And we're just going to jump right in. Would you guys pray with me uh, before we read the passage? Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you, Lord, that you're here with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are so faithful to us, even when we're not faithful even in our dry seasons, even in our difficult seasons, even when we're bogged down by life and we're really struggling. And I thank you, God, that you are over all of that and that through every single season of life, God, you are bringing about, you are are shaping us more and more into the image of your son. Thank you, God, that you use trials, you use difficulties, God, in our lives to bring us to full maturity of faith. And because of that, in every season, we can rejoice. And so, Lord, we rejoice this morning. We love you. We ask that you would move in our hearts. We offer, God, as a, just as a church family, we offer our hearts to you this morning. And we say, Jesus, would you have your way? Would you move? God, I pray that you would fill us with your love this morning, that you would empower us to love you with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind. And through that, would you empower us to love our neighbors, ourself. And so, Jesus, I ask that you'd speak through your word, that you would do this, that you would bring this about, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are picking up right where we left off in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll kind of pick through it as we go. So chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, it says this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, not falling into the test, said, Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You know, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, yeah, great job. You answer correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus decided to tell him a story. And he said, hey, A young man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest, a holy man of God, was going down the road. Great news, right? Nope. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, another man of God, when he came, surely he would help. Nope. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, by the way, an enemy of the Jews, when he saw this Jewish man and he came to where he was, when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then sat him on his own animal, 
brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Well, you know, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, Yeah, you go and do likewise. How many of you guys have heard this story before? Feel free to raise your hand. Yeah, a lot of us, right? This is a really, really well-known story. And it's commonly told in Bible school, like when you're a little kid. It's in uh, Sunday school. I remember the first time I heard it. um, Well, I don't specifically remember. But I remember my attitude about it. I was like, oh my gosh. This Samaritan loved so well. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. Like the extravagance of this love. And as a child who had his whole life before him, I was like, I want to love like that. I want to love like the Samaritan. I want to be like that, Jesus. But now, now that I'm grown, now that I'm an adult, I read it very differently, if I'm being honest. I I read it, and I remember the last time I read it, last time I was reading through Luke in my Devo time, I do remember this. It It was recent enough. I remember reading it, And my reaction was like, oh, wow, I'm not doing enough. I am not loving super well, especially people outside of my circle. Oh my gosh, Lord, like (laughs) you want me to do this? You want me to love like this? I'm like, if Jesus, if I loved everybody like this, I would be exasperated. I would be exhausted. This is impossible. And I look at this now and I just feel guilty. And the last time I read it, I read it, I felt guilty. I walked around for a few hours with this on my mind. Like, okay, what can I do better? Feeling the guilt. And then I forgot about it because I just wanted to move on (laughs) and not think about it. This is just me being real. This is not an example. Don't follow that. (laughs) But I was slated to preach on this. And so I had to figure it out. (laughs) And so I started praying and I was like, Lord, what is going on in my heart? Like, why am I, why do I read this so weirdly now? Why has my response changed? Why have I lost my childlikeness? Why am I now just feeling guilty? Why, why don't I like feel inspired to love? And as I was praying through this, this is a long process. This is probably the longest I spent preparing this was like, Lord, what is going on in my heart? Why am I responding this way? And I think I, started to figure it out. But in order to explain it, let me tell you a story. When I was a little kid, um, I loved playing Game Boy Advance. Anybody out there, Game Boy Advance players, adults in the room, you can raise your hand. It's okay. (laughs) I used to play this Game Boy Advance. It was awesome. I remember uh, me and my buddy, Corey Lee, we were best friends. We had Game Boys. Our parents got them for us. We begged them, begged them, begged them. They were pretty expensive. And as like a five, six-year-old, you don't have money. And so you're like, dad, please, please, please. Finally, he gets it. And my dad was mad when we went to buy it because he's like, what, you have to buy a game to play on this? It doesn't come with any games. And I was like, dad, stop arguing with him. Like, just get me a game. Shell out 50 more bucks. 50 bucks? Like, my dad did not like video games. (laughs) But he ended up getting it for me. And so me and my buddy Corey were playing these games. We only had one game and we just loved it. We played it for hours on end. 
Went through so many AA batteries. We even had these little fanny packs that we would store them in and we'd walk around like in the neighborhood like, yeah, you know, you know what's up, you see it. (laughs) And we were just so proud of these really dorky fanny packs. I remember one day a kid moved in down the road and, uh, well, I guess his parents moved in too. But um, obviously as a little kid, I just felt like a little shy, a little awkward. But Corey's dad knew the guy moving in. So he's like, hey, come meet his son. And we were like, we don't want to. We want to just play our games. But he made us go and we met him. And I remember standing in the entryway just being like, uh, hey, <laughs> like little kids do, like, what, what should we do? We should just play. <laughs> and so he saw our little fanny packs and he was just like, you guys like Game Boys? And we were like, yeah, do you? And he's like, do I? And he ran downstairs and we just followed him and we ran down into this room. He had 30 Game Boy games, like so many. We were like, dude, your dad must be rich. <laughs> And he was just like, yeah, like, I just got these games. And we were like, man, can we try them? Can we play them? He's like, yeah, yeah. Here, take them home with you. Borrow one or two. And so we were like, this is awesome. So Corey and I grabbed a couple, you know, we said goodbye and we left. And then we played them and we really enjoyed playing it. We were like, this is awesome. And then we started to recognize every time we'd go over to this kid's house, we could say, hey, can I borrow a game? And he would say, yeah. And so we would go over, we'd hang out a little bit, and we'd borrow a game and leave. We never returned them. And yeah, by the end, like we did this like five or six, seven, eight times. And the last time that we did it, we went there. We were like, hey, can we borrow a game? Go in, grab a game, leave. Didn't even hang out with them. This poor kid. And we left and we were playing these games. And I remember like we got greedy. Like, it went, like, straight from, oh, my gosh, you have games, to, like, shaking this kid down for video games. And I, this was, this is so bizarre. I was talking with my friend Corey, and we were like, oh, man, he's got more games. We know he's got more games. We got to go over there, and we got to get more games, because we only have one. He's got so many. We got to go get him. And I remember we were mad. It doesn't even make sense. And we walk over to his house. And we, like, we were ready to shake this kid down. He was sitting on the porch with an empty Game Boy pouch. And I was like, oh, crap. And then Corey goes up to him and, like, sticks with this tough guy thing. Like, hey, give us some games. Give us some more games, man. We just want to play. Like, give us some more games. And he said, I gave you my last games when you came last time. And my heart sank. I remember feeling so bad. And then right at that moment, his dad came out and like any tough guy act that we had, that was gone. (laughs) Like we were terrified. He's like, I hear you got my kids games. And we were like, no, no, just borrowing, just borrowing. We unload it. We weren't allowed to borrow his games anymore. But all of that to say, like this relationship with this kid, we had boiled it down to a transaction. It wasn't even about relationship anymore. It wasn't about friendship. It was just like, hey, if we go to his house, we get games. And it just became this really cheap interaction. And we absolutely used this kid. No relationship. And I was just thinking about this. I was like, man, I think the reason I have a hard time with the Good Samaritan passage is I'm just thinking about the transactional nature of it. 
Like it is an incredible transaction. The fact that this Samaritan guy who is an enemy of the guy who got beat up was willing to stop on this dangerous road, incur risk of being robbed, give of his time, so much time to bandage him up, put him on his donkey, walk to an inn and pay for his stay. That is an extravagant transaction. But what I miss And when I feel like the heart of the passage is, I miss the heart behind that. And if I'm only thinking about that transaction, that extravagant transaction, then I'm just going to be like, wow, I'm never going to like live up to that. Like, is that it? Is it just like Jesus wants this transaction from me? Like he just wants me to constantly give and give and give. Like, is, is that it? Is it just about the transaction? And I would say no. It is so much more than that. But I think that in our society, we're trained more and more to experience people in a transactional way. Things are quickly becoming less and less relational. Like, I couldn't even tell you, like, how many names I forget like that. It's sad. It's something that, like, I constantly am trying to work on. But man, like, everything is transactional. Let me just, like, give you an example. Uh, Going to the grocery store, right? Going through checkout. Like I have, like my dad used to know people at the checkout. Me, when I go, I'm really hoping they don't talk to me. Like if I go to Hy-Vee and I load up my cart and I walk up and I'm, I get in line, you know, I get there, start putting stuff on the conveyor belt. It's a big cart. And the guy starts checking, checking out. And if he starts striking up a conversation, I'm like, oh no, this isn't what this is. You're just supposed to check me out and I'm supposed to leave here. I don't want to spend relational capital right now. Like I'm busy. I got a lot of stuff on my mind. And I let this guy, I kind of like try to give him like cues, like, oh yeah, great, great, that I'm not interested in talking. And if he keeps talking, I'm just like, why did I get so many groceries? <laughs> but it's become transactional. It's crazy. Like even like food service, it's so easy to forget that every person behind a counter, every person on the other end of like the box where you order Taco Bell, that is a human being. That is an image bearer of God. That is somebody who has a soul. And I forget that all the time because I'm overwhelmed with whatever's going on in my life. It is so easy to just make things transactional. And in another deeper sense, I feel like one thing that's become increasingly transactional, especially in my generation, is sex. This thing that God created, sex, as like the peak of physical intimacy and love that he created us to experience in our relationship with our spouse, husband and wife. He reserved that because it is special. It is this form of love. But now it has become this thing where we're meeting people online just by looking at their pictures. Oh, yeah, they're good looking. They're good looking. Hey, do you want to hook up? Do you want to hook up? Hopefully we don't have that much conversation. And then they do the thing, whatever. Hey, if you go your way, great. If I go my way, great. We just want to make each other feel a certain way for a few minutes. That's so sad that even that has started to become transactional. 
And it, it like, it makes me so sad because I've, I've like experienced that in my past. And now experiencing healing and restoration and what it should look like God's way, it's like, oh my gosh, transactional relationships are so bad and so unhealthy. <laughs> and so when we look at this transaction with the Samaritan loving this person, if we're just thinking about the transaction, we're going to walk around thinking, oh my gosh, I don't have enough denarii for this, Jesus. Like, I don't have enough cash. Sorry, I don't have enough time. But I think what I want us to see and what I feel like Jesus is really getting at is the love behind the action. The love behind it that would prompt that action. Let's take another look um, at the passage. Uh, Luke 10, I'm just going to read verses 25 to 28 again. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, how about you answer? What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, glad you asked, Jesus. I know the answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, yeah, great. You answer correctly. Do this and you will live. One thing I love about Jesus is he had a way out of like every test. Every time like the Pharisees or the lawyers or the scribes were trying to test him or like put him in, a, in like a box, he always found a way out, either like turning the question back on them or telling a story. And he does both of those things here in this passage. But um, the thing I want us to focus on is the second half of verse 25, when he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is, this is a very important question. And at that time, it was like a hot topic because the religious leaders were split. The Pharisees, they believed there was an eternal life, but the Sadducees didn't. And so there was a lot of debate about this in between those two religious groups. And so when he was asking this question, he recognized this is a very important question. How do I inherit eternal life? And the way that he phrases it is in a way like, what shall I do? What do I need to do? Or in other words, what must I do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? I think this is such an important question. And I pray that every single person comes to Jesus with this question one day. Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? And for those of us who are believers, who have a relationship with Jesus, recognize that that is the start of our right relationship with God, right? That is the start when we come to Jesus and say, Lord, how do I inherit eternal life? This is such an important question, but the point I'm, I want to make here is, and just in the question form, is this the extent of our relationship with God? Is this the extent of our personal relationship with God? For instance, I think a lot of us, if you think back to when you gave your life to the Lord, when you committed it to him, maybe you were raised Christian, but you committed your life to him at some point. Maybe you weren't Christian and you gave your life to him. That moment, for a lot of us, we can think back to that love. We can think back to that first love, that first experience of grace and truth and the solidity of Jesus in that relationship. We experience that love in a relational way. 
But I think the trouble is so often we go living our lives without relationship with God. We made it like a decision and then we just keep trying to live a good life, like namely trying not to sin and trying to be good. And those things aren't inherently bad. But what is so important is the relationship that we have with God, a living, ongoing relationship. In other words, it's important to recognize that Jesus didn't just save us from something. He saved us for something in the same breath. He didn't just save us from our sin and from hell, which is very real, but he saved us from our sins so that we can be in right relationship with God. That is the good news. We're not just forgiven of our sin just to like walk through life and try to figure it out. We're supposed to walk with Jesus every step of the way. The trouble is a lot of us just get caught up here. Yeah, no, I, I gave my life to the Lord. And I'm, I, you know, I'm just trying, just trying to make it work. We are called to have a day by day relationship with him, asking him to lead us. And I think there's a really cool connection with this idea of eternal life and personal relationship with God. It's in one of my favorite verses, John 17, 3. It says something like, this is eternal life, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. To know God, to have relationship with God. That is eternal life. That's what we're going to spend eternity doing. Having relationship with him, knowing him more, experiencing his love and his goodness. I cannot wait for that. But the beautiful thing is Jesus brought his kingdom here. He brings us into eternal life now to experience eternal life, relationship with God now. Eternal life is not just a transaction like the lawyer was making it out to be. It's not just a transaction. It is the beginning of your relationship with the living God. Let's look again to the word, um, verses 26 to 29. He said to him, responding to the lawyer's question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer responded, hey, glad you asked. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, yeah, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But that wasn't enough for the lawyer. He desired to justify himself. He said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? Who's my neighbor? The first thing I want us to see in that passage, I love how Jesus responds here. I absolutely love it. When he turns the question back on him, he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? That is such a good question. I think it's important that we recognize the implications of it. This guy was asking Jesus about eternal life, a very important thing. And Jesus said, hey, let me reference the Old Testament. What does it say in the Old Testament? What does it say in the law? How do you read it? In that statement, Jesus is saying, hey, you know, I could tell you, but that truth is already in God's word in the Old Testament. Jesus is standing by the Old Testament here. 
This is so important because right now in our culture, especially like those of us who are younger, it is so, there's like this trend just unhinging from the Old Testament. Like, no, it doesn't really matter. I don't like what it says. It's challenging. It's hard to understand. I don't like some of the things it says. I'm going to let go of that, and I'm just going to hold on to the New Testament. That is so dangerous. The Old Testament helps us understand the New Testament. Without the Old Testament, we would have no idea what half the stuff is talking about. It is vital. And Jesus, the living God, God with flesh on, he endorses it. This isn't the only time. He does it several times. Not a dot, not an iota will be removed from it. Jesus stands by the Old Testament. It's vital for us in our personal relationship with God to read the Old Testament. It is a vital part of that relationship piece. And so I love the question. He says, how do you read it? How do you read it? And man, like, I think a lot of us, it's like, well, I don't. <laughs> or like, well, when I read it, I don't like what it says. But he asks him, hey, how do you read it? What do you think it says about eternal life? And he picks it out. This answer that the lawyer gives him is straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is right after Moses explains the law to God's people. It is in the beginning of chapter 6, and it's almost like a summation statement of, hey, if you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you will fulfill the whole law. Jesus says this in Matthew. And so this is in the Old Testament. They recognized this is the heart of God. This is what he's calling us to do. Personal relationship, love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. It is a beautiful image. But one thing I will, will point out, the lawyer had the right answer, but he was still wrong. He knew what to say. He had the, the answer, the password, whatever, but he was still wrong. And we see that his motives were way off here, especially when you read verse 29. He was just like, hey, like Jesus, tell me who my neighbor is. Because if you tell me who my neighbor is, then I'll be able to say, yep, doing it, check. He expected Jesus to say, oh, just, you know, your brothers, fellow Jews. He just wanted to be able to check the box. Like, yep, done. But man, checklist Christianity is so dangerous because then we're missing out on the relationship piece. He knew to say, yeah, it's, it's to love the Lord your God, and it's to love other people. But I don't think he really recognized what that means, what it truly means to love. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. 1 Corinthians is a great passage about what love is. If you want to look into it, read that passage. It's amazing. I just want to read one verse. It says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and I have all knowledge, the lawyer here, he had some knowledge. And if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. Without love, we've missed the point. Even if you cognitively understand, yeah, I'm supposed to love the Lord my God with all, all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as, as myself. That, it's not just a cognitive assent. It's a relational act. 
that we experience in a personal relationship with God and other people around us. And so it's just so important that we ask the question, what is love? Considering again, what is love? And I mean, even just asking the question will get us on the right path. I have this as one of my points because I think it's just, it's an important reminder for me or even just consider love, Carl, consider love. Recognize it's not just transactional, it's relational. <clears throat> I think one reason we have a hard time with love and especially loving people outside of our inner circle is because there's no promise of return. Like there's no promise that someone's gonna love you back. And love is a scary thing because it gives. Like it gives the benefit of the doubt, it gives compassion. And it, man, it stinks when we're rejected. It stinks. And so it's totally understandable. I feel like it, it just makes so much sense why we struggle with this. But one thing I will say is that people who are loved really well, love really well. And we are so loved by Jesus Christ. We are so loved. And we need to experience that in personal relationship with him if we're going to love other people well. I love how Jesus like talks about this, how he aims his response at the lawyer. In verse 30, verses 30 to 37, he says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. By now, or sorry, now by chance a priest was going on the road. Did he help? No. Then a Levite, did he help? No, he actually went to the other side of the road. I remember, I'll just pause here for a sec. I remember a couple years ago, I saw a, uh, or I heard a message by Martin Luther King Jr. on this passage. And I think it was like his last message that he gave, like the day before he died. Um, don't, don't quote me on that. But I remember him speaking about this and he was talking about how like over the course of history, people have tried to understand or try to give the benefit of the doubt to the Levite and to the priest. Like, why would they go to the other side? These are God's people. They know, what, they know God's heart for him. They know what, what God would have them do, help him. Why would they go to the other side of the road and avoid it? And he talked about how, like, over the course of history, they've said, like, oh, maybe, like, they were, you know, they just didn't want to become unpure because they were going down to perform some, like, ritual, you know, purity rites or whatever. Or maybe like, hey, they had somewhere to be. It was super important. They had to get there. And so they just had to like go to the other side. But Martin Luther King like brought up a point. I, I agree with him. He said he thinks that it's because they were afraid. And I think one reason that that is really valid is because this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was super dangerous. Like people got mugged there all the time, just like this guy. And so they were like, maybe they were nervous. Like, oh, if I help this guy, maybe it's a trap. Maybe robbers are just like setting him up so that they can come and get us too. They were nervous that they were going to get drugged down into the mud. And I'd also add that they were just probably, they just didn't want to give the time. <laughs> they just didn't want to deal with it. They just didn't want it to be their problem. But a Samaritan, the enemy of the Jews, responded very, very differently. 
as he journeyed, came to where he was. And get this, when he saw him, the moment he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion when he saw him. He didn't see his problems. He had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, expensive. And then he took, sat him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him, gave the guy money. It is crazy what his compassion led him to do. What his compassion, his love for this guy, what it called him to do. I think like the point here, one of the points that Jesus is making to the lawyer is that your, your neighbor isn't just your people. It isn't just your inner circle. Because in God's kingdom, he has swung the gates wide to all nations, tribes, and tongues. Anybody can be your neighbor. Anybody. That is one thing that he's getting at. But also, I think the reason that Jesus holds the Samaritan up as a great example of a neighbor isn't just because of the denarii he dished out, but it's because he responded in compassion. Like his response, his genuine response was to be compassionate, to care, to help, to step in. And that's when those acts aren't so like burdensome, when it is led by compassion. And as I was recognizing that in my study, I was like, Lord, like all that I recognize now is that I'm not that compassionate. <laughs> like I, I, I know that I can change my behavior. I know I can try really hard to do this for a few days, but it will fizzle out. I will be frustrated and burnt out and I'm going to stop. I'm probably going to stop after the first time. But I was recognizing that it was the Samaritan's heart that prompted him to help. And I can't, I can't change my heart. None of us can. Only Jesus can. And so my encouragement today is if, if you are like me in this way, my encouragement to you is offer again your heart to Jesus and to ask yourself this question, I think. Has your personal relationship with Jesus become transactional? Has it just been about the transaction of salvation? Has it just been about the transaction of not being guilty for what you've done wrong? We can go to Jesus with anything. We can be confident that when we put our faith in him, he will give us eternal life. Yes, those are all, those are all givens, but is that where the buck stops? Is that it? Or do we experience relationship with him day by day? hour by hour. We need to receive his love every day if we're going to live the way he's calling us to live. We can't do it by ourselves. No amount of like religious fervor will get us there. We need our savior to change our hearts. We need him to move and direct and guide us every day. I know that for myself. And so my encouragement is take that step. Just talk with Jesus throughout your day. Ask him. Ask him for what you need. Offer him your heart in the morning when you go to his word and say, Lord, what do you have for me today? How do you want to change my heart? How do you want to change my life? I want to invite the band to come up. But the most important thing, 
if we're ever to be like the Good Samaritan, is that we are so well loved by God. And what I know is that Jesus is constantly pouring out his love to us. He is constantly extending that love, even though we often reject it or forget about it. He's extending it. And so that means every day when we remember, we don't need to feel guilty, but we can just step into it. And we can say, thank you, Lord, that you love me. Thank you. Would you empower me to live the way you created me to live? Would you empower me to love you in return with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And from that place of being so well loved, would you empower me to love the people around me? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you, Jesus, for everything you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, that you are, you are just so faithful, that you are so steadfast in your decision to be committed to us. Because, man, Lord, I just, I go everywhere. I look to so many other idols. I'm forgetful. But I thank you, God, that you know our frame. You know everything about us. You know exactly what we need. And I pray, Lord, today that you would meet our need for love. That you would meet our need for acceptance. That we wouldn't have to just like put all of our effort forward to getting that ourselves, to having control, to feeling a certain way. But Lord, we would just receive the love that you so freely give and that it would transform our hearts and that we would love other people radically because of that. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.